Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. If not, grab one in front of you. Uh, Leon read it for us out of the King James Version, which makes everything sound a lot more, uh, I don't know, holy, doesn't it? I mean, you just read out of the King James and you just feel like, man, I was at church today, uh, which I love. But I'm in the CSB because my brain and big words don't always go together very well. And I can't pronounce a lot of things, so I, I choose the English version that has the, the least... Uh, Hard words to pronounce. So Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, and if you are like me and you want a Bible like that, there should be one right in front of you. One of them says it's the Santa Bible. That's not a holiday Bible. That's the Spanish Bible. So for most of you, that probably won't be very helpful. Uh, You're going to want to use the English Bible if you're anything like me. Now I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into this really, really important text uh, that I think has a lot of value for us as Christians in 2022. And it's only going to become more and more valuable uh, the further along we get in this world. So let me pray for us, then we'll jump into it. Father God, thank you so much that I get to do this. Uh, Lord, thank you that I, I get to preach your word. I get to open it up with your people, and we get to talk about your great and glorious deeds. God, I pray for us as a people that we would stand strong in a time in which there's a lot of people who are hostile towards our faith. Uh, God, not only in the world, but in our everyday lives, people are becoming increasingly hostile towards the things that you call good. They call those things evil. And Lord, we must have a mind like the Israelites to keep working towards your will, even when it's not uh, something that the world wants us to do or something that we feel comfortable doing. God, we need the courage that you've given your Israelites in this text. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us through Nehemiah chapter 4. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Jesus was uh, often slandered and insulted during his lifetime. Uh, in, in John 8.41, he's called a bastard. He's called a drunkard in Matthew 11.19. He's called a blasphemer in Matthew 26.65. And he's called the devil in Matthew 10.25. And as he continues on, Jesus tells us that, hey, it's not just me who is going to be insulted, but if you follow me, you better expect that you also will be insulted. He says this in Matthew 10, 24. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house the devil, how much more the members of his household. It is very important that we understand our faith is not always going to be easy. We will face hostility if we follow Jesus, and it's only getting more so. Uh, There's a fellow named uh, Aaron Wren. He's a very smart guy. He writes articles in in theological journals. But he talks about how the world has shifted uh, pretty considerably over the last 100 years in the way that it views Christianity. He talks about three different phases that we've went through over the last 100 years. It starts with the positive phase, which was this time in the West, and particularly America, where you were viewed as a positive attribute if you were a Christian. It was a good thing to be a Christian. The world saw the Christian worldview as the basis for its moral. What Christianity called good, the society as a whole called good. Things were not perfect. I'm not saying that at all. There was a lot of problems during these times, but people were positive towards Christianity. If you were in a community like this and you weren't a Christian, it was seen as a negative. Like even if you didn't believe in Jesus, you showed up to a building like this every Sunday because you couldn't run for political office if you did not. And he talks about how then we moved into about the 1960s and everything began to change. We had a sexual revolution and people began not to see Christianity as positive, but more as neutral. It was one of many worldviews. You know, you choose your worldview and that's fine. If you're a Christian, that's great. Go be a Christian. But there are other worldviews out there. There are other ways of saying things are right and things are wrong. And then he talks about how we have recently moved into a new phase, and that is the negative world. 
in which Christianity is no longer neutral, but increasingly the things that Christianity values are things as seen as negative, things that the world actively seeks to put out. Uh, So when you look at the Christian worldview and you think about how the world has changed just in the last 20 years, it's kind of outrageous to think about. In fact, some of the things I could even say in a church building might offend people that would not offend people 20 years ago. For instance, when I read Genesis 1 and I see that God made them male and female in his own image, he made them that way. It can offend people if I just read the scriptures, because who am I to say that a man cannot be a woman or a woman cannot be a man? It is offensive for me to say that God knitted you together in your mother's womb. And the reason why Christians are against abortion is not because we're not pro-choice. No, we're pro-choice for everybody. I wanted my little daughter Blakely to have a choice while she was in the womb because I didn't create her. God created her. So no, some doctor doesn't get to come in and crush her skull and rip her limbs off one by one. And if I say these things, often I am called a bigot. I am I'm offensive and I'm not trying to be offensive. All I'm doing is telling you what the Christian worldview is. And if you're not a Christian here today, you're welcome. And I love you and I want you to become a Christian. But this is my worldview. And, and it's no longer seen as just neutral. It's now seen as negative. So in this world where everything's becoming increasingly hostile towards us, how do we approach our faith? What are we to do as Christians? I think that Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us uh, two good responses. I don't know how far we'll get today, uh, but I, I want us to avoid the two kind of worldly responses that we all get when we mocked. And by the way, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're mocked more than other people. We all get mocked for various things. I am an Oklahoma State Cowboy football fan. You better believe I get mocked for that. <laughs> I am a man, and I get mocked for being a man. You know? We all get mocked for various things. The difference in the Christian and the non-Christian is not that we are mocked. It's how we respond to the mocking. And there are two ways that the world typically responds to the mocking. And if we're not careful as Christians, we also respond in these ways. The first one is kind of a passive response to the mocking. And this is kind of when I give in to what the mockers or the bullies are saying so that they will stop mocking or bullying me. You know, you can think of like a junior high uh, kid who wears a, you know, I love my dad shirt to school. And it's like their favorite shirt that they've worn. And it's the first day of fifth grade and they show up and their friends bully them and they mock them and they make fun of them. And all of a sudden, this little girl who loved this I love my dad shirt of of which Blakely will have many, I am sure. <laughs> uh, I hope. Uh, when she wears this shirt and she gets mocked for the very first time in the fifth grade, what happens? That favorite shirt is now in the trash bin. Because the bullying was so much, I don't ever want to experience that again. So, so it's a passive type response. And we see this a lot in our culture, don't we? It's kind of funny. We call it cancel culture. This happens uh, whether you're politically conservative or politically liberal. It happens on both sides. But I always find it very funny when uh, somebody who's like a celebrity who really has no values, they just want to be liked and have money, they find this out the hard way and they post something that they don't think is offensive and all of a sudden somebody finds it offensive and that person gets a mob together and they begin to insult and bully this person and all of a sudden what happens? The person who believes something and said something the next day is issuing an apology for what they said. I don't believe that at all now. It's like you don't have any spine. You are passive when it comes to the insults. And I expect that from the world, but friends, we should not expect it from the church. Uh, Look at what the Israelites do in Nehemiah chapter 4. It says they keep building because the people had the will to keep building. You can insult us, but we're not going to stop doing what God has called us to do. And it kind of frightens me when I see some of the things that churches are doing today. Some of the things that people I respect are giving into because of the insults and the mockery of the world. I read an article yesterday about a pastor who has a hobby of being a drag queen, dressing up as a woman on the weekends. Now, you don't have to worry about that with me. Uh, 
I don't think I would look very flattering in those clothes. But isn't it kind of outrageous? Just how, Can you imagine just going back to like 1996, a pastor standing up and saying he did drag queen on the weekend? That pastor would not stand in any church. And yet now today, that's something that is not only tolerated, but we're supposed to celebrate it. And we're a bigot if we're not celebrating it. Now, this is kind of a heavy sermon, and I get that. But it's supposed to be, I think. You don't think it was heavy for these Jewish Israelites to have the most powerful empire in the world crushing in on them? Absolutely, friends. And as Christians, we must be prepared for the same to happen to us. The most powerful empire in the world might soon be pushing in on us and our values. I could very well go to jail for some of the things that I say in 20 years. Now, I used to think people were crazy when they do these like doomsday things in 20 years. You know, this and this is going to happen. But you, like, you just look back 20 years and you look at what has happened now and it's like, wow, things are moving at an extraordinarily fast pace. So we have to be careful not to be passive, giving in to the insults. But then there's the other side of that and there's the aggressive side. Uh, of which I've seen many people. And the aggressive side is basically like, we're going to be jerks for Jesus. You know, you insult us, we will insult you back. And if I'm honest with you, this is kind of my side. I, I take a lot of pride in my wit and my cunningness, and I can really pierce people with my words. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And so you say something stupid, I can make you feel pretty stupid if I want to. And, and in truth, I feel good when I do that. You know, I feel like I won the argument. But friends, as Christians, we value relationship over being right. It does no good if I own you in an argument, but you leave not loving Jesus. See, I have to both be standing for the truth and grace, just as Jesus Christ was. And if you want to see what an aggressive kind of insult back and forth looks like, just watch like any presidential debate. That's all they are, right? It's like, you said an insult, so I'll say a bigger insult. You said an insult that's bigger than mine, so I got an even bigger insult coming back at you. And it's just voices coming back and forth. Or you don't even have to go to a presidential debate. You could just go to Facebook. <laughs> Look at a controversial post. And honestly, in my soul, something about that draws me in. I want to be aggressive with my insults against other people. And yet that's not the right response either. There's another way that Jesus' followers are supposed to take. I think we see that way in Nehemiah chapter 4. So I'm just going to walk through this uh, chapter, uh, hopefully getting through all six verses. Well, I want to look at the ways in which we can respond better as Christians, but we also in the first few verses see kind of the reasoning behind this. Because this is a question that uh, I've wrestled with a lot this week, which is why does God allow us to be bullied and slandered? You know, why is that something that Christians forever have seen that as really a virtue? That we are the people who don't respond to insults with insults. We are people who are hated and condemned and oppressed, and we take pride in that. Why, God? Why is it that way? And I think we see some reasons why people slander us as we jump into the text. So Nehemiah chapter 4, I hope you have your Bible, verse 1. It says, when Sanballat, he's the bad guy, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews. And here we see the first reason why people mock us. It is the flesh. Now, as Christian theologians, which you all are because the theologian is somebody who studies God, as Christian theologians, we believe in the Trinity, which is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all one, and yet they're distinct beings. But did you know that the Bible speaks of an unholy Trinity? There's a holy Trinity, and then there's an unholy Trinity. The unholy Trinity is the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we see all three working in this text. The first thing we see is the flesh, human gratification. It makes him mad that they are doing God's will. And by the way, you want to know why the world is so hateful towards Christianity and the Christian worldview? Because something in their flesh hates the idea of submitting themselves to Jesus as Lord. 
Who are you to say, I don't have control over my money or control over my sexuality or control over anything in my life? I am my own God. And when you tell me there's a God outside of me, it makes me furious. This is what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. It says, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. That just means the non-believers. Carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. You know why people are, are so hateful towards you? And if you're a teenager, you probably experienced this in school, where you know, people will call you a prude, or you stop getting invited to certain things, or you know, people say, oh, you're the Jesus freak. You take this a little too seriously than other people. You want to know why people are so hateful towards you? It's because you are challenging them in their own flesh. They see you, and they don't like it. And this is true really in all areas of life. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but you try to make a positive change in your life and all of a sudden the people who are supposed to love you the most are the people who begin to mock you. It's like they're against you. You know, like you're trying to stop smoking and your old smoking partner begins to make fun of you or tempt you with cigarettes. Why? Because they like the idea that cigarette smoking is something they can't stop. And so when you stop it, it says something about them. They're like, wait a minute, if they could stop, I could stop and I don't like that. Or you try to lose weight or get in shape, whatever it may be. You have people in your life who will begin to tempt you and mock you for doing this. Why? It's because of their own flesh. There's something inside of them that hates seeing you succeed because then they lose all of their excuses. See, I can have all the excuses right now for my overweightness. You know, I just had a brand new daughter and and, uh, Oreos taste really good and I don't really like working out. Until I see somebody else with a newborn who begins to get in shape, all of a sudden my excuse for why I could not lose weight is now out the window. And I don't really like that. It makes me kind of furious. Has anybody else experienced that or just me? I don't know. You guys are all angels and saints and you never get furious at the success of other people. That's great. Uh, This sermon is just therapy then. The, The first thing we see is the flesh. This is why people are after them. Now, the second part of the the unholy trinity, I said, is the world. And we see that here. Verse 2. Before his colleagues, so he's mocking the Jews, before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. And said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? This is where we get into the mocking. Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? This is, you're supposed to read a lot of sarcasm into what is going on here. Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, who was beside him, you know, you always got, the bully's always got the friend that'll just say yes to whatever they do. This is the friend of the bully. It said, uh, indeed, even if a fox climbed up on the wall they are building, he would break their stone wall. Ooh, Burn. What do we see? <laughs> That's how I read the Bible. Uh, what do we see? Well, we see they're going to the world. And this is something that we see throughout Scripture. That the world, and when I say the world, I mean like the, the culture as a whole, the systems, the laws, the governments of the world tend to go against Christianity because Christianity comes to flip it on its head. Christianity says that if you have money, you ought to give money. The world that has the money says we don't want to give our money. You know, Christianity says that those in power are those who are serving. Well, those in power usually aren't that keen on serving. And so Christianity is a huge problem when it comes into the systems of the world because it seeks to upend everything. This is why whenever people really begin to lose their way as a society, one of the first things that happens is they lose the culture. Uh, I read a lot about the, uh, the Nazis, and it's just, I'm fascinated with it, how a guy could just really turn a whole nation into so much hate. I mean, really, those people, 
a lot of the Germans would be considered good people. Like we would have seen them and we would have thought, man, you're not a bad person. And yet they were so captivated by something that happened that it turned them into mass murderers. And if you ever begin to think, well, I would never be a part of that, you're in a lot of trouble because uh, you better be careful if you don't think that you are easily deceived. We all are. We must be on guard at all times. And one of the first things that Hitler did when he got in power was he began to take control over the culture through movies and such. But he also infiltrated some of the churches. And what he would do in the churches is he would say, you know what, we've got to throw away the Old Testament because the Old Testament is pretty pro-Jew. And uh, that went against what he wanted to do. And he used to he'd take out all the verses he didn't like, and he took his book, Mein Kampf, and he made that part of the Holy Scripture. And churches began to eat that up. And, and over time, what happened is it began to change the hearts of people, people like you and I who go to church. And they began to see what this person was doing, and they saw it as good. What is that? That's the world influencing what's going on against God's people. And there's a lot in our world, increasingly so, that is against God's culture. Now, I'm not a complete doomsdayer because there's other parts of the world where God's worldview and God's ways are exploding. You go to the Eastern world, you go to Africa, there is a gospel revitalization going on like we have never seen in the East. It's very possible that in 50 years, the Eastern world will be the world in which we see Jesus proclaimed as king and the West will be the world that does not proclaim Jesus as king. But where we live, which is in the West, it is getting increasingly, increasingly hostile. And part of that is because of the world. So we have the flesh, we have the world. But behind all of this, friends, is the devil. Uh, which, you know, if you're not a church person, you like the devil, you know, some spooky guy with a pitchfork and he's down in hell. That's not true at all of what the devil is. The devil, the devil is actually here. The de- hell is for the devil later on. The, the devil is here. And the word devil, which is diabolos in Greek, literally means one who slanders. It's what he does. He insults and he slanders. And his goal is to insult and slander those of us who are trying to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say in Ephesians 6 that, look, you might think that Tobiah or this empire is your problem. But no, Christian, your problem is what's going on in the spiritual world. There's an unseen realm right here amongst us that if we had the veil opened up and we could see what was going on, it would freak us out, Paul says. He says, that's where your war is actually taking place. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead, before you were a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. John, 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. This is why we must fight our battle with different weapons. It is why we fight our battles with prayer and the scripture. And what I'm doing right now, believe it or not, is warfare. Doesn't look like it, does it? This is why the Crusades were so wrong when Christians took up swords and they began to war against other religions. That's not the way we do it, friends. We do it in the spiritual realm. What we're doing right now is having a massive impact on the spiritual world. You might not always think so, but we are. You think, well, the sermon wasn't that good this week, or the music, you know, I didn't really like it, it was kind of pitchy, you know. What? That's not the point. The point is that we are here doing war together. Satan hates what's going on here, because this is super important towards what God is wanting to do in the world through us. So that's the, the reason why we are slandered, right? It's, it's the, the unholy trinity. <laughs> we have the flesh, we, we have the world, and we have Satan who's leading it all. There's two other reasons why God allows us to be slandered. They're kind of surprising reasons. The next reason is it's for God's glory. 
See, God loves when his people are slandered because when he shows up, it really silences them pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really kind of ironic because all the things I read here when he was mocking the Jews, he was saying so in a sarcastic tone. And God literally does all of those things through these pathetic Jews. And friends, the truth that Paul reveals to us in 1 Thessalonians is that one day on the day of judgment, all will be revealed and everybody who mocked us, insulted us as believers will stand there in awe of the God who has done all the things they didn't think were possible. And God will get all of the glory. And the last reason, and this is probably the most surprising reason, God allows us to be slandered for our joy. You say, wait, Blake, what? For our how many of you like being bullied? I don't like being bullied. I don't like being insulted. I don't like being slandered. What do you mean, pastor, that he does it for our joy? Well, I'm glad you asked me because when you ask me, I always go to Jesus. I'm not making this up. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. This is nuts. He says, you are blessed. I'm blessed. I got a big house, you know, a good car. No, that's not blessing. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You think, well, that might have been a typo, Blake. Jesus surely didn't say it anywhere else. Oh, he did. It gets worse. Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. It says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. He says, leap for joy. Can you imagine how weird that would look? You get insulted? Yes! Yes, you insulted me. That is so awesome. But that's what Jesus says to do. He says, leap for joy when they insult us on Facebook or when they insult us in the Hollywood movies. You ought to be sitting there in the movie theater not mad, but going, oh, yes. That's what they do in Acts chapter 5. This is after Jesus. Look at the early disciples. May this be us. It says, then they went out of the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Do you see why we don't talk about this doctrine very much in the church? This doctrine of we're supposed to be happy when we get mocked? Because it's kind of not what we want, is it? You're like, wait, why? Why would I, why would I have joy in this? And I'm glad you asked because the Bible gives us a couple reasons why we ought to have joy when we are insulted. This was my big question this week as I wrestled with this text. Why, why God, would I have joy in the midst of the insults? And the first reason is when we are insulted, we know that God's spirit is on us. It's a way that we know we are his. Look at what 1 Peter 4.14 says. It says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Friends, you ought to be concerned if you're never mocked for your faith. Like if, if nobody ever insults you or kind of laughs at you or gives you, you know, the silent treatment because of your faith or thinks you're a bigot because of what you believe, you ought to be concerned because we're in a war. And if the enemy's not attacking you, it's probably because you're not in the war or you're on his team. If you are insulted more for the football team that you cheer for than for Jesus Christ, there's a problem. See, the insults are actually a very good sign because my Savior was insulted and he said if he was insulted, I would be insulted. So those insults ought to come to me in some way or some form. And I tell you that because I love you. Like if we had a checklist of how, how can I be sure that I'm a Christian, that I'm a Christ follower, this would be near the top of that list. You know, do you ever get slandered in the ways that Jesus was slandered? Because if not, you have no reason to believe that you are in Christ because those in Christ will suffer with Christ. 
The second reason why it's a blessing is because if we're being insulted now, we'll get the opposite later, which is a blessing. If I bless you, I'm saying something kind about you. If I insult you, which is the opposite of that, I'm saying something negative about you. And God says there's a great blessing waiting for you if you are willing to be insulted by this world. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. We can't be the aggressive type of people. But on the contrary, give a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Friends, we must be willing to endure 1,000, 1 million, 1 trillion insults on this earth just to hear one blessing when we stand before Lord Jesus Christ. And that one blessing that I live my life for, and I hope that you do as well, is I want to hear Lord Jesus bless me with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the blessing that we must be after. And I'm concerned about my own soul and about your souls because something wells up inside of me when I know I'm about to get insulted, when I'm in a group of people and they're saying things that are against what God would want. And I know that I don't believe it and I find myself nodding my head along with what they're saying just because I don't want to be insulted by them. There's something wrong with that because what I'm doing is I'm valuing their approval more than the approval of Jesus Christ. And friends, one of the reasons why it's great to be insulted now is because we can know we will hear the greatest blessing of all from our King Jesus. And if that's not the blessing you want to hear more than anything else, then maybe this whole Christianity thing isn't for you because this is a group of people who love Jesus And more than anything else, we want to see Jesus love us as well. Now, as we go to the third reason, and the final reason, uh, is the reason why it is a blessing, and this is the biggest reason, is because there is something spiritual that happens when we are insulted in the way that Christ was insulted. And that spiritual thing that happens is that we know Christ at a deeper level. If you're a Christian, the main goal of Christianity is to know Jesus deeper. It's not to avoid hell when you die. The main goal of Christianity is that I get to know Jesus more and more and more. And the more I know Jesus, the more joy that I have in my soul. The the two are directly correlated. If I have Jesus and nothing else, I am full of joy. And what Paul tells us in Philippians 3.10 is one of the ways to get joy is to be insulted in the way that Jesus was insulted. Look at what Paul says. My goal is to know him. That should be all of our goals. I want to know Jesus more and more and more. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The more we're conformed to His insults, the more we'll be conformed to His blessings and the more that we will know King Jesus. Friends, this is why it is a blessing. This is why we ought to leap for joy when we are counted worthy enough to endure the insults of Jesus. Now, as we continue... Uh, coming to a close here pretty quick. Uh, I'm trying to watch the time. I'm, I'm trying to fit a lot in in a short amount of time because this is really good stuff. It's really important stuff. Uh, so anyways, verse 4. It says, listen, our God. This is their prayer to God in the midst of the insults. It says, listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. And here we get into the first good response to insults. Uh, remember I told you that the bad responses are an aggressive one and a passive response. The first good response is what I would call a biblical response. And that's what we have here. The people, instead of returning an insult, they go to God in prayer. Now, you might think that their prayer is a little bit you know, violent or mean. You know, basically, God, you take care of them. 
this is actually what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament too. He says, hand people over to the Lord, let him take vengeance on them. And again, that's kind of like, ooh, that's kind of mean. But really what he's saying is he's saying, God, don't protect them from reality. One of the ways to read God in the Bible, especially if you're reading like the Proverbs of the Old Testament, one of the, the most basic ways you can kind of think what's going on is you can replace the word God with the word reality. Now, God is not reality. God creates reality. God sustains reality. But at a, at a basic level, it, it is easy to say this because God is the one who creates reality. So when I say, uh, God, let them have what they are going to have, what I'm basically saying is let reality take course. Because I believe, God, that you created everything that is. And so they, what they think is good, if they continue to go down that path, what's ultimately going to happen to them? It's going to end in destruction. So, teenagers, when, when your friends insult you for whatever it is that they're insulting you for, you know, maybe it's, it's your devotion to sexual purity. You're not perfect, but you're striving for sexual purity. And they say, why would you do that? You know, it's ridiculous. You're wasting so much time. You know, you're wasting all of this fun that you could be having. You're restricting yourself. One of the things you can do instead of arguing back or insulting back is you can say, you know what? You can have what you want. Let's go both go down our own paths. I'll go down the godly path, obeying what God says, and I'm going to allow you to go down the path that you want to go down. And if God doesn't intervene in your path, what's ultimately going to happen is 20 years from now, I'm going to be in a lot better position than you are because I built my life on reality. You've built your life on a lie. I think about this a lot with my own friends, especially from high school. Uh, a lot of them aren't my friends anymore just because we live such different lives. And... Uh, you know, I've, I've often looked at their lives and envied them. I've got friends, you know, who are traveling around the world. I've got friends who have done a lot of cool things. And in a worldly sense, my life is really kind of dull and boring. And a lot of people would say, you're wasting your life. Now, I got married young. I got married at 22 years old. That alone is kind of rare nowadays. Uh, I, I, I'm a pastor at a church in my 20s, which, you know, most people aren't thinking that's a good time. Like you should be in the frat house, not God's house in your 20s. And yet here I am. I had my first kid already. A lot of my friends aren't even married, and I've already had my first kid. And yet what I know to be true is that over time, in 20 or 30 years, what's going to happen is a lot of those friends who right now don't envy my life at all will one day envy my life. Because when I'm 45 years old, I will have worked in a job that has made a true difference for two decades. I will have, uh, hopefully, multiple kids that love me and love Jesus. And I'll have a marriage to one woman, and they will probably have something very different. You know, they will have uh, probably given their heart to several different people through several different encounters. Uh, they will have uh, searching, still be searching for their purpose. And if they found their purpose, they'll be a little later on down in their purpose. And none of this is me saying I'm better than them. All of it is is saying I put my life on the foundation of God. And I'm allowing them to go down the, the route that they want to go down. This is a biblical response. When somebody's insulting us, guess what? You don't have to say anything at all. You really don't have to. God, give them what they have coming to them. That's a prayer you pray, and you can smile and be nice to them. That's the biblical response. Now, there's one response that is even better than that. And uh, if the band wants to go ahead and come up, we'll come into a close. The biblical response is good, but as Christians, we always want to take it one level deeper and say, what is the gospel response? The biblical response is hand them over to God, allow, allow the wrath of reality to come their way, and ultimately, on the day of judgment, allow God's wrath to come upon them. But the gospel response is what we see Jesus Christ do. In his perfect life, he then went to the cross, and on the cross, he is mocked ruthlessly. They put a robe on him to make fun of him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They nail king of the Jews above his head. They spit on him with spit glands that he created, mocking him, gambling for his clothes. And what could Jesus rightfully say in that moment? He could rightfully say, God, give them what they have coming to them. 
Give them the wrath that comes their way. I will allow them to go down in their own flames, so to speak. But that's not what he says. On the cross, what does Jesus say to those who are insulting him? Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. Friends, we as Christians are called to a higher standard. We are not called to simply hand people over to God for judgment. You can, that's a biblical response. But we're to bless those who persecute us. To actively bless those who are insulting and slandering us. And you say, Blake, I don't think I can do that. You know how you can do that? By experiencing the gospel for yourself more and more and more. Because the truth is, is in this text, you are not the one being mocked. You are the mocker. Every time you sin by watching things that are anti what God would say to watch, or you drink uh, to a level that God would say not to drink, or whatever the sin is, every time you have envy in your heart, lust, gluttony, whatever your sin is, and we all have a list of them, what are we doing? We are mocking God. We are saying, God, I know better than you. Your ways are restrictive. Your ways are evil. I know what is good. You do not know what is good. And our only hope as Christians is what? That God would not allow reality to come over on our lives, but that he would intervene. That he would say, not just to the people who were there mocking him, but to all of us in this room, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the more and more we experience that, the more and more we are able to give that to other people. Jesus tells a parable. And it's a parable I I try not to use every week because it's so good. I can use it in almost every context. But he tells a parable of a guy who's been forgiven a huge loan. We'll say a million dollars. He couldn't pay it back. He's forgiven the million dollar loan and then he goes out and there's a guy who owes him 20 bucks. And, and that guy says, you know, can you give me a little bit more time? And this guy who's just been forgiven a million dollars says, no, I can't forgive you $20. And the goal of Jesus there is he's being ironic on purpose. He's saying, do you see how ridiculous this is that somebody says that they've been forgiven a million dollars and they won't forgive somebody 20 bucks in the same day? Well, the same is true for us, friends. If we believe that God has forgiven us for all the mockery we have given against him, how can we not also forgive the people who have insulted us? And see, our hearts will change if we will allow it. We will quit being angry at those who insult us and we will begin to be grieved for them. Because we know that they have been blinded by the spiritual enemy. And we don't want them to go down the path of reality to their own death and their own grave. No, we want them to find Jesus. Because he is the only one who can turn a mocker, a sinner, into a saint who loves him and pursues after him. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are so good. Thank you, God, that you are the God who is willing to be mocked so that a mocker like Blake Farley could be called a child of God. Romans 5.1, you tell me that I am justified. In Romans 5, you also tell me that you died. You sent your son Jesus to die for me, not when I was all cleaned up and, and the perfect saint never mocking you, but while I was still a mocker, while I was still an enemy. God, you died for me. So, Jesus, I pray that you would give me the courage to give that same kind of love towards those who curse me. That I would bless those who insult me. And Lord, I pray as a church family, as we go into times of hostility in a world and in our daily lives, Lord, we would be like the Israelites. With the will to continue doing what we are called to do. Not in a passive way and not in an aggressive way, but just as you did, Lord, with grace and with truth. And friends, with your eyes closed and head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit... What are you saying to me through this message? Father God, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to this God.